sort of when Mike Cohen is not in town, kind of runs the show. Here you go. <laughs> Thank you very much for um, inviting me to Chicago. I love Chicago. It's such a beautiful city. And people are so energized after lunch. I was amazed. You guys, I don't know what they, what do they give you to drink? I did. Um, so I'm going to go pretty quick. Some of the stuff we kind of touched on in the, um, in the question and answer the case study. I have questions and we will vote, but um, we won't have a panel discussion. The first thing I want to say is just to remind you that um, the guidelines, uh, the DHHS guidelines have changed, right? It was um, uh, when to start, um, and you remember above 500, there was this kind of uh, split uh, and this idea that perhaps uh, it should be optional. And now, um, basically, ART is recommended uh, for all individuals with, with HIV, and even in the high viral load group, the strength of the recommendation is moderate, but it, there was a consensus for that recommendation. I think based on the cases, I think you're all up to speed on that. Um, in, in terms of um, what to start, we have a lot of choices. And as, as Dr. Wolverding said, the, the choices are really going to um, continue to expand. Uh, and I think we're, we have a luxury here in the United States where we can tailor our therapy uh, to our specific patients. We can really think about what patients need, and we can think about patient preference. We can think about adherence potential. We can try to anticipate tolerability and toxicity. Um, we know there are some uh, HIV factors like viral load and CD4 that perhaps should influence what we do. Um, if they have certain comorbidities, it's also going to influence what we do. And finally, um, all of our therapies are going to have some drug-drug interactions, and we have to stay aware of these. I think in terms of um, uh, what to start, probably everybody in this audience is completely familiar with the DHHS and the IAS USA guidelines. It's pretty straightforward. We have four basic regimens that are recommended, um, the, the fixed-dose combination with the Favrins, uh, two uh, once-daily boosted PIs, and then raltegravir, all with tenofovir and FTC. And, and these DHHS guidelines really are, are mirrored by the IAS-USA guidelines. Um, our panel, our IAS-USA panel, has worked very hard um, at updating these guidelines, and, and we hope to bring them to you um, uh, sometime in the next few months. Um, our, our alternative regimens, and I never really liked the word alternative, because um, for many patients, I think everyone here is aware that alternative is perfectly acceptable, and in fact might be preferred in some patients, just like we discussed. Um, this um, uh, recommendation hasn't changed a lot. Basically, you can take all of the preferred regimens and then pair them with a Bacavir and Sweet TC, and that becomes an alternative regimen. Here you'll see that Ropivirine fixed-dose combination. Ropivirine, FTC, and Tenofovir is a um, uh, Alternative, it probably has the alternative because of its um, uh, issues in the high viral load, which, which we'll talk about. Um, and some of these have somewhat limited data. For example, the data with raltegravir plus abacavir and 3TC is really pretty limited. Um, uh, and, and so, um, again, there's no reason it shouldn't work well, but again, that's what I think uh, helps put it on the alternative list. Um, one thing I would point out when you look at this, 
is that uh, we don't have a single regimen, preferred, alternative, acceptable, that doesn't contain nucleosides. So I'm going to run through a few cases, um, and I just this is really more to poll you guys and see what you're thinking about. So um, we can read it together pretty quickly. This is um, a 25-year-old uh, uh, male uh, college student. He really is concerned about his ability to concentrate. Um, his CD4 is 275. His viral load is 17,000, so it's not that high. Um, he's been in. He's, uh, uh, these numbers have been repeated. He uh, is coming to your clinic uh, uh, regularly, and he really wants once daily dosing. Um, so what, rec what regimen will you recommend to him? Um, and these are currently approved uh, regimens. So I'm hoping some music is going to play now. Because if, if I have to sing... So, so interesting. I think that um, uh, this idea of kind of concentration, do these drugs actually affect um, how our patients uh, perform mentally is it, a concern. And, and so um, uh, while most people are interested in, in TANOP or FTC efavirenz as, as the uh, preferred therapy, there's really uh, a consideration, I think a reasonable consideration, um, for uh, the fixed-dose combination with lopivirine. And, and this might be a very good uh, place to consider that. And, and um, we'll see in a minute why there really rarely is a wrong choice on these slides. But I think, unfortunately, choice four is probably a wrong choice. And we'll look at that in a second. Um, so there have been now quite a few comparisons of first-line therapy. And this is, this is a list. It's, it's not completely exhaustive, but these are the basic large, well-powered, phase three type studies. And I'm going to get to those bottom two um, to kind of up, um, uh, to bring us all up to speed on the, the quadruple regimen that contains uh, L-vitegravir and cobacistat. So we'll get to that data, and then you can think about how that might fit into what you do. But basically, efavirenz has been the benchmark for comparison, uh, and, and as was mentioned this morning, has not lost in... Uh, a head-to-head -head comparison. Um, and for the first time, the very bottom one, I'll show you a phase three study where the comparator uh, of a new drug wasn't um, a favirenz. And, and in this case, it was adazanavir, uh, ritonavir. And we do have quite a few drugs now that have tied um, a favirenz, and, and we'll look at some of those. So in terms of rilpivirine, I, I think based on the discussion this morning, people are pretty well versed on on rilpivirine. It's an NNRTI, obviously. Uh, in vitro, it has a pretty high barrier to resistance in vitro. But you'll remember, perhaps, that the original dose of this drug that was tested was 150 milligrams, and there was an issue with QT prolongation. So they actually settled on a dose of 25 milligrams. So it's a, it's a very small pill. I don't know if, if you've seen a rilpivirine pill, but it's a little tiny pill. Obviously, when you put it in a fixed-dose combination, it's no longer a little tiny pill. But here are the pooled results from two very large studies. There's 600 patients, and almost 700, actually, in each of these study arms. And I just had a latte. So there's no way I could draw those two lines on top of each other any better than they were in the study. I mean, they're, they're perfectly overlapping. Um, but it's important to remember how the FDA evaluates drugs, right? They use a combined endpoint. 
where, where tolerability and toxicity are the same weight in terms of failure as virologic failure. You might not consider it that way as a clinician. You might see virologic failure with resistance as a more, um, uh, have more consequence than stopping and changing a medicine because of, you know, uh, difficulty sleeping, for example. Um, but, but the FDA doesn't think of it that way. If you stop the medication, then, then that is a, a, a treatment failure. Um, so you want to look carefully, and this slide, I think, really helps us uh, uh, make that point. So if you look at viral load, um, uh, this is all patients. So remember, it's 84% less than 50 at 48 weeks with uh, rilpivirine. Again, all of them are tenofovir, FTC, uh, versus 82% with efavirenz. And it slightly favored rilpivirine. But notice there are numerically more, uh, this is a percentage, uh, proportionally more virologic failures with rilpivirine and proportionally more adverse events or other discontinuations with efavirenz. There are very few deaths, so, but this is taken directly out of a paper by Cal Cohen that just came out. Um, so there's a balance here. You can see there's a balance, which, which makes sense when you think about um, how uh, our patients respond to rilpivirine. But if you start um, making the hurdles a little higher, so higher viral load, 100,000 to 500,000, this now numerically favors efavirenz, but it's not significantly uh, different. But the virologic failures are now 13% versus 5%. And again, there's a difference um, uh, with more discontinuations. And then finally, if you look at the very high viral load, the ends are smaller, so this doesn't have a lot of weight. The success rate's a little bit less, which is um, uh, not too surprising. Some of these may not be true failures because they may not have gotten down less than 50 but you can see now there's 22% uh, virologic failures with rilpivirine. Um, and, and the adverse events are actually closer together, uh, which I think find interesting. It may be that people that have very high viral loads um, are, are feeling better because you're suppressing their viral load and they're not so annoyed by those relatively minor side effects. So, so there's the balance for you. And, and um, how does that balance play out in terms of consequences? Well, the consequences are if if you rebound with onrilpivirine, so there are about, um, in this particular resistance analysis, about twice as many rebounds uh, where they look, got resistance data. And what you can see is that um, uh, a similar proportion, six, 50 to 60% had NNRTI resistance. That's a proportion here, so obviously the number is greater. You get this different mutation, E138K. It's annoying. You know, why do we have to remember another mutation? Um, it's important, though, because it probably provides cross-resistance to atrovirine. But then also notice this. This is emergence of nucleoside RAMs. Um, so this is, these are, it's predominantly uh, the 3TC or FTC resistance, and it, the proportion is twice as great. So, so even though in vitro, rilpivirine has a high genetic barrier, in vivo, because of the lower concentration, it has a low pharmacologic barrier, and you end up with more resistance. And in fact, if you looked at the NNRTI resistance, you're more likely to have multiple mutations. Whereas with efavirenz, most of the patients just had K103N. So there are consequences. That doesn't mean rilpivirine's bad. In fact, it may be quite good in patients with low viral load who have tolerability issues. Um, the other thing that was very tempting uh, was, well, why, you know, raltegravir is so well tolerated. Let's give it once a day. 
um, and see uh, if uh, it can uh, kind of survive that challenge. So we did a large study called QD Merck, uh, about 400 patients in each arm. And again, uh, Tanakhra FTC was the randomized comparator in both arms. Um, uh, and Raltegavir was either given BID or once a day. Um, and there was uh, going to be a 48-week primary endpoint and a 96-week secondary endpoint. There was no CD4 cell cutoff. And, and basically, the, the study didn't, didn't go to completion uh, because what we saw was uh, that the once-daily raltegravir did not do as well. And if you looked at this in isolation, you might say 83% below 50 copies, 48 weeks. That's pretty good, right? Um, well, actually, if you take raltegravir twice a day, you get almost, well, it's 89%, almost 90% less than 50 copies at 48 weeks. And in fact, those of you who can quickly look at confidence intervals, you'll see that um, it, it, it's negative. Even the, the, the confidence interval is entirely negative. So raltegravir Q-day was actually inferior. It was inferior. So even though the result wasn't bad, it was inferior. So that's why we, we wouldn't recommend raltegravir uh, uh, once a day. And you wouldn't be at all surprised to learn that the people that were most vulnerable were the people with high viral loads. So this is your risk of virologic failure. If your viral load was greater than 100,000, the red line is uh, Q-day. Uh, and you can see a clear separation that happened early. Whereas on the other hand, at the lower viral load, you didn't really see much of a separation. And perhaps you could argue maybe the, the 3 or 4% that were voting for raltegravir uh, once a day, actually knew these data really well, and we're saying, well, you know, it looks comparable. Um, but I, I'd be worried that these lines might ultimately diverge further. And, and again, I think the party line, which I think is reasonable, is, is raltegravir should be given uh, twice daily. Well, what about this new combination? What about elvitegravir, cobacistat, FTC, and, and, and tenofovir? Cobacistat is ritonavir without any HIV activity. So it's a booster. It's, it's there to boost the level of L-vitegravir. This is all one tablet. Obviously, this is all one tablet, Tenofovir FTC and Efavirenz. So this is really the first comparison of two single-tablet regimens. It was blinded, so patients had to take two pills. And in reality, they actually took them, if they did what they were told, at, at different times during the day. Um, but because uh, l uh, Favrin's used this at night, and L-vitegravir or cobacistat, um, they recommend with food. Uh, and this is a large, randomized, head-to-head, 350-patient study stratified by viral load. And the results were excellent for both therapies. Here's the overall result. This is the proportion, less than 50, uh, at um, 48 weeks with the, what the FDA calls a snapshot analysis now, which is a little different than Tolover, but it's, it's about the same. And you can see that both regimens did very well. In terms of uh, failure to suppress or virologic rebound, very, well, no difference. 7% in both arms. Uh, and then there was a, a numeric difference in uh, patients in whom there were no data who might have stopped therapy uh, because of tolerability or were lost to follow-up. And this is the 95% confidence interval. You can see it, it favors the quadruple regimen a little bit, uh, but doesn't um, uh, go above zero. So there, uh, it's a non-inferior regimen. Um, and I can tell you, um, though I, I don't have the, the data in the handout, if you look at high viral load versus low viral load, both regimens did well. In fact, the quadruple regimen 
did even better than, somewhat better than efavirenz in lower viral load. Um, it did a little bit better in people that were older, which might make some sense. It doesn't have the CNS toxicity. And it did a little bit better in those individuals that had higher uh, CD4 cell counts. Um, in terms of tolerability, it's really what you would have expected. Um, uh, there was a little bit more nausea, so maybe cobacystat is a little ritonavir-like. There was a little bit more nausea in the quadruple regimen. But if you looked at the other things that we know about, abnormal dreams, insomnia, rash, again, um, those were significantly higher with the efavirenz-based regimen. So here's another single tablet, once a day regimen um, that appears to avoid some of those toxicities that we, or tolerability issues that we have with efavirenz-based therapy. And unlike wilpivirine-based therapy, um, it doesn't appear to have the issue with um, uh, higher viral load where it, where it has less activity. It has good activity like efavirenz and high viral load, but it does contain this cobacistat which is a P450 inhibitor, so it's going to have drug-drug interactions that you have to think about. They also, um, the, the sponsor also did a head-to-head -head comparison of the quadruple regimen with atazanavir, ritonavir, um, FTC, and, and tenofovir. Again, not a fixed dose, obviously. This would be three, three pills. Um, but uh, blinded, randomized, 350 patients. Um, and they also showed very good activity uh, of both regimens. Again, numerically, tiny bit higher with the quadruple regimen, uh, but both regimens did very, very well uh, with viral load suppressed less than 50 at, at 48 weeks. You can see virologic non-suppression or virologic failure. Again, almost the same, or, or at least percentage-wise the same in both arms, and a little bit more discontinuation or, uh, uh, in the atazanavir ritonavir arm. Um, you can see the confidence interval, so clearly non-inferiority was met. And in this particular study, if you look at that side effect profile that I showed you, they really were virtually overlapping. The only difference in this study was um, in the uh, resistance. There were very few virologic failures. But in the virologic failures with adazanavir-ritonavir, you, would you predict there would be resistance or no resistance? Shout it out. No resistance, right? It's a boosted protease inhibitor. With boosted L-vitegravir, with virologic failure, though uncommon, you do see emergence of integrase inhibitor resistance. So the boosting does not have the same effect as it does with protease inhibitors. There is still emergence of resistance. And again, comparing across studies, looks about like what you see with raltegravir. It looks pretty similar, and the mutations are relatively similar, similar not, not identical, but relatively similar. Um, this is the topic that um, uh, you heard about, Mike Sag mentioned, and then during the um, renal toxicity lecture, if you give a medicine with cobacistat in it, um, the creatinine will go up somewhere around 1.5, uh, oh, excuse me, 0.15 milligrams per deciliter. That's not a toxicity. Remember, creatinine is excreted. It blocks excretion. Um, but you can see this is the uh, interquartile range. You can see it's, some people go up by uh, 0.2. Some people don't go up nearly as much. So um, that is something you're going to have to think about when you use this drug. And in the two studies that I told you, in order to be eligible, you had to have a creatinine clearance greater than 70. So this is the, was discussed on Friday, last Friday, by the FDA advisory panel. They voted 13 to 1 to approve it. I, I, I really don't understand the one person that voted no. 
not quite sure um, what that person saw in the data. Um, and it's likely, though not guaranteed, that it will be approved sometime this summer. So you, you'll have another choice, but you do have to remember about this creatinine change. Okay, so um, our last patient. Pretend something else now is this quadruple regimen that you learned about. Let's say um, RM was a woman, 25-year-old college student woman instead of a, a man, um, who uh, was sexually active, had a, had a few partners, had no intention of getting pregnant, um, uh, but was also um, uh, a little bit less rigorous in terms of using barriers. She was on a, a birth control pill, but um, in terms of barrier protection, she, she wasn't as maybe rigorous as she should have been. What would you pick for her? And remember, something else Here we go. Ah, so she's not as assiduous as she should be, perhaps, about uh, protecting herself from um, uh, pregnancy. Uh, therefore, Favrin's has gone down. People like the boosted protease inhibitor in this setting. Certainly, I think Ropivirin would be a very good choice. And I think it would be reasonable to consider the quadruple therapy, though, again, we only really have 48 weeks of data on that study. And, and if you're somewhat cautious about that, I think that really makes some sense. So, so I, I would tend to agree with this. You know, with a little bit of work and a little bit of understanding about the risk, perhaps you would be happy with the Favrin's. But I think this is a very good setting for ropivirine-based therapy. Okay, here's a tougher one. Um, now he's a 55-year-old man. He's got elevated lipids. He's got diabetes. He's got a family history of MI. His estimated GFR is now 35. 35 cc's per minute. His CD4 is 58, and his viral load's not that high. Again, look carefully at the choices. Think about it for a minute, and go ahead and pick. What are you going to do here? Make actually. So we'll see where you guys go. Go ahead, show us. Um, so most people are moving to a Bacavir-based um, therapy. So if we added this all up, we'd get, uh, I guess, about 60 or more percent. Um, some people are, are going to try every other day Tenofovir FTC. I don't think that's wrong, though there are many people that would say they wouldn't do it. I think you'd have to be extremely careful if you're going to do that. Clearly, you don't want to do this because you're overdosing the Tenofovir. And some people are, are enamored um, with uh, nuke sparing. Um, and I am too, and I was, um, with Baba Femi and, and Baiba. We were all enamored with this. Um, uh, but I'll show you some data that you might become less enamored. One issue with a back of your 3TC, everybody kind of remembers high viral load of back of your 3TC. But these are data from, from um, that same ACTG trial looking at lower CD4. Um, and then, you know, the darker is um, low viral load and the lighter is high viral load. And also notice that uh, a back of air 3TC also didn't perform quite as well at low CD4. Whereas with tenofovir FTC, you really don't see that fall off. So again, um, this patient had a low CD4 cell count. I probably would have gone with a back of air based therapy, but you have to keep this in mind. And it might influence the choice of your background therapy 
um, when, when, you, when you make a choice about uh, therapy here. Well, what about uh, uh, darunavir, ritonavir, and raltegravir? So uh, Baba Femi, who probably many of you know, Taiwo, um, there's Baba up here and a bunch of other ACDG people and myself. We had this great idea. We thought, if this is such a good treatment, we won't even use a comparator arm. We'll just put 100 people, actually 110 people, on this therapy, and it'll do so well, everybody will be happy. Um, that's not what happened. We saw a lot of virologic failure, and these are virologic failures. So, so only 71% of the patients at 48 weeks were less than 50 copies. And this is not an FDA analysis. Um, people who went off therapy for tolerability or toxicity were actually censored. Um, if you did missing equals failure or anybody was missing, it was actually only 60%. But did not work as we thought. And then everybody was critical, appropriately critical, that we didn't have a control group. Um, so we're anxious about using this regimen. On the other hand, there are plenty of people that did fine. Um, and there's a very large study in Europe, a head-to-head -head comparison of darunavir, ritonavir, raltegravir versus darunavir, ritonavir, tenofovir, FTC that's going on in Europe. So that's, we'll get those results, and hopefully this will be a fluke. And the other thing we saw is that um, we did see raltegravir resistance, unfortunately, and almost all of them had a high viral load. Okay. Um, so now, you know, people want sometimes for us to talk about resistance, but, but, you know, we don't see that much resistance, but where we see it actually is in naive patients who have transmitted drug resistance. So here's our patient again, a 35-year-old woman recently diagnosed with HIV. She had a positive partner who would not always use condoms, and unfortunately women don't always have a choice uh, in this. Um, and... Um, uh, it, it should say he was on and off HIV therapy. The partner was on and off HIV therapy. So she comes in. She's now infected. Her CD4 is 438. She's got almost 70,000 copies, and she has a K103N. And she also has a, another reverse transcriptase mutation, T215D. What does that mean? Who knows? That's, a, that's not exactly an AZT resistance mutation, but you guys are right on the ball. It's an AZT position. And it means that um, there was AZT resistance and there was a partial reversion. So you've got to worry that there might be NRTI resistance floating around here too. So go ahead, pick a treatment. Pick what you're going to do here. 103N and then this kind of ghost here that maybe there's some resistance. Go ahead, pick. Wow, that was very fast. There was no... Were people... Can we, can we do that again? Okay, now play some music. Oh, no, you're doing this to me again. This is what's happened in, in Los Angeles. <laughs> There's something wrong with my slides. I, I, they're, they're contaminated or something. Um, so I, I should probably keep going because I, I, won't, I won't get to the end here. Are we... Are we, are we the point I, I want to make is that, oh, okay, go ahead. Now, now go ahead and vote. Okay, what do we get? Well, it's about what we had. That's good. So, excellent. I, so, okay, nobody did this. Outstanding. Um, and we have a smattering, but a lot of people are thinking, well, maybe the boosted protease inhibitor is the way to go here. 
And almost, that's almost, what, 75%, almost, uh, picked a boosted protease inhibitor regimen. Fantastic. I think you guys have been reading the literature. Because, um, first of all, transmitted drug resistance is common. Um, this is from uh, a recent presentation at Croy. Um, if you look at recent infection, about 18% of recently infected people have uh, transmitted drug resistance. And about 10% of that 18% is NNRTI. And then about 7% are, are nukes. Fortunately, two-class resistance isn't that common. So that's good. Um, and I don't know whether they would have counted this one as two-class or not. Um, but what's interesting is there's this very nice study from Europe where, where they looked at um, treatment response with transmitted drug resistance. So this was a very large observational study. Um, and what they looked at is they looked at patients um, who many of them got their um, genotypes in retrospect. And they showed that if you had no transmitted drug resistance, your virologic failure rate was pretty low. Um, if you had transmitted drug resistance, but the ART that was picked was fully active, you did about the same. That's this blue line, fewer people there. And of course, if you had transmitted drug resistance, there wasn't the genotype and the doctors picked or the clinicians picked, excuse me, um, a uh, regimen where there was at least one drug to which the virus was resistant, you didn't do very well at all. Uh, but if you break this down, and I'm hoping the next part, if you look carefully, here's the data. Um, no transmitted drug resistance, that's, that's the referent group, so that's, that's one. If you have transmitted drug resistant but fully active ART, then you don't do quite as well if you look time to failure. The hazard ratio is above one, but it's not significant. And of course, if you have transmitted drug resistant and you didn't pick the right drugs, um, obviously you fail more likely. But here's this broken down by two nukes and an uh, NNRTI. And look, here's with transmitted drug resistance, and the drugs are said to be fully active. And you see that, again, it's not quite significant, but there's almost a twofold risk. On the other hand, if you have transmitted drug resistance um, and, you, and you picked two nukes and a boosted PI, um, fully susceptible, obviously that's the referent, but if you had transmitted drug resistance and your boosted PI and your nukes uh, looked active, you did just as well. I mean, in fact, you know, it's even a little bit below the line. So my practice is if I see transmitted drug resistance, I certainly lean towards a boosted PI based on these data. Um, okay, so that's transmitted drug resistance. So, so I switched Dr. Uh, Sag's question around. What is uh, failure of first-line therapy? Um, and I don't know. We don't really know the answer. I mean, if you read the guidelines, if you have confirmed greater than 50, then that's failure. But what do you do with that? Um, and so is it 200? Is it 500? Is it 1,000? Um, so let's... Yeah, I, I, I kind of agree with you guys. If you're reproducibly above 200, then, then that's probably not where you want to be. Um, the question is, well, what do you do exactly? Um, okay, so if I did it right, we have a case that asks you, what do we do? Um, so here's a patient, um, bottle load of 150,000, CD4, 390, responded to his initial combination therapy, got less than 40. That's the uh, um, one manufacturer does less than 40. 
His CD4 went up over 18 months. However, he started to miss appointments. Um, and uh, now he has a viral load of 290. So you call him up and you say, you know, it's probably a mistake, but you better come back. We'll check it. And he comes back and it's 238, four weeks later. Um, and you call your lab and they say, we don't send them out unless they're greater than 500. Sorry, you can't have a resistance test. What are you going to do? Here are your choices. Um, let them look for a minute because they've got to read through it. So change without a resistance test. Get drug levels. Maybe it's inadequate therapy. Get a tox screen. Just counsel them. Or it depends on what his initial uh, combination therapy is. I haven't told you what it is. So go ahead and vote. So nobody's going to change this. With, so, so the majority of the audience said greater than 200 confirmed is failure, and I agreed. And yet no one's going to change therapy without a resistance test, and I agree. Um, uh, you could measure drug levels, but I, I don't know that it will help you. Um, and, and maybe the best thing to do is really kind of just get them in there and show them and uh, try to get them to be more adherent. Or perhaps it depends on what the, his combination therapy is. You feel differently if this patient is on uh, NNRTI uh, versus a boosted protease inhibitor. I do. Um, if he's on a boosted protease inhibitor, I'm much more likely to do four. If he's on an NNRTI, I might even think about this. Um, so it really does depend. Um, so I think, I think you guys are really totally on the ball. Um, so there are lots of causes of uh, ARV treatment failure. I'm not going to walk through all these because you really know what they are. Um, but it's important to, when you have the patient in front of you, it's really important to go through these. And there's certainly some things that we forget about um, that, that we should try to remember, uh, like drug interactions. Uh, be very careful about that, including, you know, uh, uh, over-the-counter uh, medications. Um, the wrong dose. I mean, I'm always amazed that you think you explain things so many times and then somehow the dose gets mixed up. And occasionally um, there might be issues with absorption. Do, do your clinics have patients with weight problems? I mean, my, so I've had now three patients undergo um, some sort of bariatric surgery, and all of them have had trouble taking their medication after the surgery. Um, and and, uh, uh, and so I, I have to be careful about that. I didn't really think that was going to be much of an issue, but it turned out it was. Um, so again, our, uh, this is a very Chicago-based meeting here. Baba Femi Taiwo um, actually did a really nice analysis. We looked at, people have looked at low-level viremia in treatment experience patients, and there's quite a bit of data on that, but there's very little data on low-level viremia on people on their initial therapy. So, so we, we, we tried to take a look at this. Um, in an ACTG study, and uh, Baba Femi named it non-sustained uh, uh, virologic suppression. So people that had uh, blips, essentially. They could never be confirmed above 1,000 because they wouldn't count. Um, uh, but if they were in between 50 and 1,000, um, uh, then we followed them over time to see what would happen. Um, and not only 65% only 65 patients out of 1,200 met this definition, which is great. Um, uh, so we don't see it very commonly. Uh, and when we looked at these patients, 
Next slide, please. There we go. Um, we found that if the maximum viral load was less than 100, 0 out of 10 uh, uh, had new resistance mutation. However, this was the scary part, at least for me. If they were between 100 and 200, excuse me, 100 and 200, 5 out of 13 actually developed at least one resistance mutation. And then if you had a um, uh, uh, subjects that were greater than 200, uh, uh, more than half developed a resistance mutation. Um, and if, you, if the patient at least was below 50 at any time, they were less likely. If they had a single measurement above 1,000, they were much more likely to have resistance. And if you looked at area under the curve, that was a good predictor. And we actually, though we saw this non, um, uh, non-suppressive viremia more commonly with boosted PIs, so we saw this low level, but we, we rarely saw resistance emerge with boosted PIs. So uh, I think that kind of makes our point. Uh, and then there was a very large study done by um, one of the European cohorts. They looked at uh, almost uh, 1,250 patients. They had to have a viral load less than 50 at some time on therapy. And then they just looked at the likelihood of having a subsequent viral load greater than uh, 150, and they divided it into uh, greater than 50, excuse me. They divided into three groups, not detected. So you know how you get that report, it says not detected. Um, detected, but less than 40. They're using the Abbott assay here, or between 40 and uh, 49. And not surprisingly, the people that were not detected were less likely to have at least one viral load greater than 50. Well, what about confirmed? Well, again, um, if you were not detected at less than 40, they really weren't that much different. Though the people that were between 40 and 50, um, they were more likely to be confirmed above uh, 50. And again, what about, conf what about uh, confirmed above uh, 400? Again, if you're less than the limit of detection and if you're not detected, if you reach that beautiful not detected thing, um, then the likelihood of being confirmed above 400 was very low. But if you're in that gray zone, um, were low le essentially low-level but detectable viremia, measurable viremia, you were slightly more likely to have a confirmed rebound. So, um, again, it's, that's why our goal is to get as low as possible, um, though exactly what to do with failure is a little bit more challenging. Um, so now this guy comes back. His viral load is actually now confirmed above 500. Um, he admits to difficulty with adherence. It turns out he was on raltegravir plus tenofovir FTC. He was missing that afternoon or evening dose. You get your resistance test back. You see a 184V, and you see this integrase inhibitor mutation, uh, N155H. So now what do you do? This is an integrase inhibitor mutation, and as you know, this is the 3TC resistance mutation. So here are your choices. Keep raltegravir and encourage adherence. Switch to that quadruple regimen, presuming it's available. Switch to uh, a Favrin Sinopher FTC. Switch to a, a boosted a protease inhibitor plus tenofovir FTC. Um, or switch to uh, boosted protease inhibitor, tenofovir FTC, and another fully active agent or something else. So go ahead and vote. Okay, what do we got? Fascinating. I, I, this is great. So um, very few people are going to continue rel raltegravir. I think that is not a good idea because you'll get more resistance and you'll get higher level resistance. Um, I'll show you in a minute why perhaps switching to 
the L-vitegravir is not a good idea here, even though it's available. Um, I'm, I'm getting my lines mixed up a bit. Um, three is uh, switch to a Favrin's-based therapy. Four is switch to... Uh, oh, wait, yeah, three is a Favrin's-based uh, PI, and, uh, and here is a switch to a boosted PI plus an additional fully active agent. So that, three active agents, right? Three TCs not active. I would not do that. I would, I would, do, I would do this. I would, excuse me, I would switch to a PI plus Panopter FTC and no additional agent. Um, I would go against the guy. I was told in Atlanta I couldn't do that. I wasn't allowed. Um, but, but you are allowed, but it's not exactly what the guidelines would suggest. First, just a little teaching point. Um, so first line failure with limited resistance. What's the next best therapy? Um, uh, this is cross-resistance between raltegravir and L-vitegravir. This is the message. They're cross-resistant. You can't salvage raltegravir with L-vitegravir, and you can't salvage L-vitegravir with raltegravir. That won't work. It's kind of like a Favrin's and Neverpine. It's just not going to work. This is dalutegravir. It looks like dalutegravir will be active against raltegravir-resistant variants. So that's one point. But the second point is really for second-line therapy, we... There, there is no good study. There's no randomized study of second-line therapy. What we do know is a boosted protease inhibitor is pretty good. Um, this is uh, the ODIN study of darunavir-ritonavir, probably the best studied in this uh, setting. This is not um, pure first-line failure. This is uh, uh, early failure, but not first-line failure. And the reason I'm, I'm not convinced you need a, another fully active agent, in this study they only allowed nucleosides, um, You'll notice that, that low viral loads did better than high viral loads. You never see that with darunavir. What's going on? Darunavir is supposed to be really potent. If you're supposed to be on therapy and you have a high viral load, what's the likely explanation for this? Adherence, right? And actually, in this study, if you had 3TC resistance, were you more or less likely to suppress? Trick. You were more likely to suppress because it was evidence that you actually took a drug sometime in your life. Um, so, so I'm not convinced you need that second active agent, um, that, that, that additional active agent, but you have to think about it. And just finally, um, I want to just point out that, that dalutegravir has now been studied in patients with raltegravir-resistant virus. Um, we did it the right way the second time. Um, these are very experienced people. These are not first-line failures. Subjects... Um, uh, had to have at least three-class resistance, um, including integrase resistance. They had to have raltegravir resistant. We did one cohort that was Q-day, and then we did one, a second cohort that was twice-daily dalutegravir. In the second cohort, um, we required patients to have at least one fully active agent. They got functional monotherapy for 10 days, so we just replaced the raltegravir with dalutegravir, and then we optimized at um, day 11. Uh, so that's the study design. The numbers are pretty small. But what we found was this was the primary endpoint, either less than 400 or at least a 0.7 log decline. 0.7 logs is five-fold, so 100,000 to 20,000, something like that. And you can see with twice-daily dalutegravir, 23 out of the 24 patients uh, met this criteria. They either got less than 400 or they had a five-fold decline. Um, and, in fact, over half got less than 400. So, so the twice-daily dalutegravir, Clearly pretty active in, with raltegravir resistance. Um, I, I'm going to skip this slide, but if there's questions, we can answer it. And finally, we looked at um, uh, 24 weeks 
and uh, this is less than 50 here. Remember, cohort one, we didn't require a fully active agent at, at day 11. Cohort two, we did. And you can see that three-quarters of these patients, it's only 25, 27 patients, but three-quarters of them suppressed and stayed suppressed on a dalutegravir-based regimen. Um, so dalutegravir clearly has activity um, against uh, raltegravir and presumably L-vitegravir-resistant variants, but if you want it to work, it's got to be partnered with something. So that case that Mike talked about this morning of resistant to everything Maybe you do have to use dalutegravir in that setting, but it, it will be tough if you don't have at least one fully active agent. Um, so I'll just uh, finish up here. I just want to remind you there is a dalutegravir expanded access. I tried to change the color on this, and I apologize, but that's the website for it. Um, it's in your handout. I, I couldn't get the color to change. It was this Microsoft thing because it looked like a, a, a web link. Um, so they have to have a few things here. They have to have documented resistance. You have to be able to construct a viable background regimen. They have to have a creatinine clearance greater than 30. Um, and, and so you can get dalutegravir if you have a patient with high-level resistance. Um, dalutegravir is similar to cobacistat. It raises creatinine by about 0.1 to 0.2 by blocking uh, creatinine excretion, so not affecting renal function, blocking excretion like cobacistat. Uh, and then just to sum up, um, for our treatment experience patients, there are lots of challenges. We should have zero tolerance for uh, virologic failure, fully, at least two fully active agents. I would argue that you should use three fully active agents, except perhaps with minimal resistance uh, when you use a boosted PI uh, plus tenofovir FTC, as long as you don't have tenofovir resistance. But, but that's Joe Iran's opinion. That's nobody's guidelines. Uh, we need well-powered randomized trials of first-line failure. The reason, you know, that you want to balance complexity with activity, and we should have a high bar for safety in all of our patients, regardless of treatment experience or not. So I'm done. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. Um, while the questions uh, come up from the audience, as I was listening to you, I, I wondered, so we have now a class of drugs, the integrase inhibitors, with three soon drugs available. Any rationale for combining integrase inhibitors, quad plus dolutegravir? That's a really interesting question. I, they certainly have... Um, They're different enough in resistance? Very different resistance profiles. Um, they're unlikely to uh, interact, have drug-drug interactions. Um, potentially, if you had a patient that had extensive RT and protease resistance, uh, you could think about it. Um, I don't know of any plans to, to look at that. Um, obviously, back in the day, we combined protease inhibitors when we had little else we could do. There's some people with enough gray hair to remember sequinamir, ritonavir, you know, 400, 400, and all that stuff. So um, we, could, we could try stuff like that. Um, I'm trying to read some handwriting here. I think it might be John's. Um, while I do that, let me ask you my other question. Um, you know, we all talk about adherence. We recognize that, that patients really have a challenge to it. Practically, what do you do? And is, is there an approach in your clinic? You deal with a lot of uh, complex patients? Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, you know, I I would say my my skill at adherence is not very great. We do have a, a adherence counselor in the clinic. You, doing simple things, I think, are important. There, nothing is too simple, like you know, pill boxes, phone follow up. Um, you know, I have one patient whose life was saved by copay cards. He was too embarrassed to tell me that he couldn't afford the copay. He had insurance, had good insurance. And I, his life was literally saved by copay cards that I, I never really thought to give to him. Um, we are working on a text messaging. Um, mm -hmm. Probably some of the more sophisticated sites are, are working on that sort of thing. I think that um, a lot of those smartphones have, uh, you know, reminders you can... And I'm surprised someone hasn't made a medication app for the iPhone. Maybe one exists. Maybe you know. I saw you with your iPhone. Yeah, yeah. There are two medication <laughs> reminder apps for the iPhone. Excellent. There's some good baseball scoring apps, too, for yeah, your yeah, iPad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I found yeah, a great one. A lot of our patients, our young black men, as we see more and more, you know, they don't have a lot of things, but mostly they do have a smartphone. Um, they might not even have a, a, a... They might not be very smart themselves. Well, they might not have a plan, a cell plan, so they'll go to, like, the Starbucks or wherever they need, and they'll use the, uh, you know, the wireless function, the, the, the Internet function on the phone. So you can't call them but you can text them, uh, and they'll answer the text when they get to somewhere where they can steal somebody's internet. All right, so I'm both collecting questions and reading handwriting better. Simplification strategies in a patient uh, who's been doing great with a viral load that's not detectable. Yeah, I think that would be a great talk for another ISUSA, because I think there are going to be a lot of simplification studies that are being done. Um, my own feeling is that if you have a patient that's suppressed below detectable, um, most of the things that you can think of are probably fine. Um, you know, people have looked at a switch from, uh, you know, fabrin-based therapy to rotiparine-based therapy, and there was some concern because if fabrin's an inducer, you might have lower than expected rotiparine levels and you'd see failures. Well, uh, they, they did a small study of 50 patients, and all 50 patients did fine. There are now uh, a whole bunch of switch studies uh, using the, the quadruple regimen, that single tablet regimen with L-vitaper and cobacistap. But I really think if, if, if somebody's suppressed, um, you, you probably won't mess them up in a simplification. I think what's much harder is that if, let's say, you start someone on an efferance-based regimen, they come in two weeks later and say, I can't sleep, I'm having terrible dreams, I can't wake up in the morning, um, but their viral was, was you know, 200,000, now it's 6,000, then what does it do? I think that's much harder. I, I don't know that I would go to a straight filtering switch in that setting. I might kind of get them undetectable with a boosted PI, for example. So, but that's impossible to study. You can't do a study because that's pretty Yeah. Good. So th there are <clears throat> actually some questions that, that relate to similar, similar issues. And what is there about the set point um, that makes something so bad. The question uh, yeah. specifically is, what about a patient who started on Beltegravir, BID, viral load is now well, can you go to once a day? Yeah, that's a great question. I, what is it about high viral load that, that makes these drugs less successful? I, I talked to Charlie Flexner. It's not number of molecules. As it turns out, you know, there's plenty of drug molecules around. I mean, there's, you know, trillions of drug molecules so there's something about that high viral load, whether it's the inflammatory environment that, that Dr. Tracy might talk about, but it's clear, we see it in so many different studies. My own belief, this is completely a belief system, is that once you get that viral load suppressed and it's suppressed for a reasonable amount of time, like six months or a year, 
I think their initial viral load doesn't matter as much. Um, Merck made a decision not to study once daily raltegravir in that setting. They, they certainly could have, I think, but, but they, uh, it was decided not to do that. I certainly have patients that come in and say, Doc, you know, I only take in my raltegravir once a day. And if they're suppressed, I just say, fine. Um, they sometimes they say, I'm only taking one pill once a day. And I say, no, 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 no. Just, to be fair, take both the pills. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, but, you know, they, they tend to stay suppressed. So uh, kind of a variant on a theme here. Um, patient who's on the fixed dose combination of uh, Favarin's, Truvada, FTC, uh, uh, been on a long time but with persisting low-level viremia, but persisting low-level viremia. Yeah. Uh, and T cells are doing fine. Do you yeah. leave it alone? Do you? I, I personally would leave it alone. Um, we do know, right, that, that there's a bell-shaped curve of viremia, and most people get to around two or three copies. Um, we've looked, and, and probably about 25% are less than one copy, and then most people are around two or three copies. But obviously there's a tail. Um, so I think there are people that release virus at a higher level. They have a bigger pool of infected cells. And again, um, you know, if you end up re finally rebounding and they have a 103N and a 184B, you've got a, a whole bunch of things to treat them with. I mean, if you're talking, you know, like 50, 80, 100, I would just probably let them sit. But I'm sure you could find someone else that has a different opinion if you'd like them. A follow-on question from someone else. Um, in those patients with low-level viremia, is there any suggestion that the CD4 does less well? No, not that I know of. That would be, we, we could have looked at that, and we didn't. Um, we, we, probably, we probably have the data together. We could. My own weird observation is that sometimes when people blip, their CD4 seems higher. Um, and I, I, I've meant to look at that in our database, and I haven't. But I, there's no evidence of that as far as I know, that, that you'll see less CD4s. So, again, kind of a, a, another uh, question related to some of the other ones we talked about. Simplification. What about intensification? Do you ever add a drug um, to intensify the yeah, regimen? So if someone has low-level viremia, let's I guess so, yeah. and, and intensify. Um, I've tried that kind of thing, and, and it doesn't seem to make a difference. Um, I think if you're going to do that, you should pick something that has a pretty high barrier. So if they're, they, you know, like I would... I was going to intensify, probably intensify with a boosted protease inhibitor if they weren't on one already. Um, but my own clinical experience is I, I don't see much effect there. I don't know, Paul. No, I agree. Yeah. So a couple uh, integrase questions. Uh, monitoring CPK with dolutegravir, um, and can you comment on um, elvitegravir and dolutegravir with pregnancy? Yeah, I... Um, so in terms of monitoring CPKs, as far as I know, they have not seen any uh, uh, cases of uh, myositis with dolutegravir. So, so I don't know if someone in the audience knows different than, than I would learn from them. Um, so I don't think there's any special monitoring that's needed. Uh, in terms of elvitegravir and pregnancy, um, I can tell you that the, uh, the preclinical tox, the animal toxicity, um, there was no signal, so it'll either be category B or C. But I can also tell you there's no data in, in human women that are pregnant. So, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but but it'll, 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 it won't be a category B. It'll be B or C. We'll see what that is. I mean, Ropiprene was a B based on you know animal data, which I, I thought was surprising. Actually, I've always heard the terms human and woman. Human women, yeah. I mean, it's like no, it's you don't use women, <laughs> cows. I mean. Right. 
<laughs> a drug that doesn't get, uh, and this will be the last question, I'm sorry, uh, we have a stack here, but um, Maravarock doesn't get talked about much. Do you want to say kind of? Well, you know, I just think that there's a threshold that you have to cross to use Maravarock. You, you, know, you have to get a test that, that normally you don't need. Um, and again, if you get the test and you decide not to use Maravarock for whatever reason, then you, if you, when you go to use it, it think about it again, you've got to redo the test because, you know, it's not like a HLA B5701, which you can do one time and yeah. then you can, as long as you don't lose the patient's record, you can use it back five years later. Um, it's a very well-tolerated drug in my experience. Um, uh, and it probably can be given once a day, especially with boosted PIs. I know that Viva and, and Baba Femi are doing a study uh, with uh, Drudinger Retinavir and, and Maravarock and uh, uh, it was it was quite well tolerated. I just think there's that just added threshold, basically, of use. I'm, I'm tempted to keep going because there's a, at least one other question I really want to ask about the patient who doesn't have a CD4 response. But let's save that for next year. And <laughs> so, Joe, thank you very much. And then I'm.